Hi, welcome to NANCAST and to the continuation of this series on interviews giving you an inside look at how every NICU is a neuro-NICU. I'm Jill, your host. As we all know, the NICU is a stressful place, not only to our families and even the nurses, but most importantly, the babies as well. This is a time when trillions of synaptic connections and pathways are being created, forming the foundational brain architecture, an opportunity that they will never have again in their lifetime. How can we, as NICU nurses, create opportunities for positive sensory experiences? One nurse has done just that, Sarah Baki, and today we are going to talk about a program she developed to optimize that delicate period in neurodevelopment. Let's get right into it. Hi, Sarah. I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Hi, Jill. I'm happy to be here. Sarah, why is understanding early brain development so important for NICU nurses? Well, as you said, they're going through a period of brain development that they will never have another opportunity to go through in their lives. So what we know about early brain development is that during the third trimester and postnatally, that's the period of the most rapid brain growth that will occur in a child's lifetime. The brain grows 80% in the first 18 months of life. And as you said, uh, the synaptic connections, so trillions of synaptic connections, 100 billion neurons. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about brain growth. And what we know is that the level of connectivity in the newborn brain actually far exceeds the level of connectivity in the adult brain. And that's called exuberant connectivity. So when we talk about neuroplasticity, you always hear that term. What that means is that the brain has its greatest ability to reorganize and adapt during the, that early period in life because of that exuberant connectivity. So it's crucial for NICU nurses to be aware that that rapid brain growth is happening right there in front of us every shift, every hour, every interaction that we have with these babies. So considering there's so much uh, neuroplasticity that's occurring and we want to try to capture that time and decrease stress and decrease stimulation in these babies, but how are some other ways nurses can support early brain development? So we definitely, minimizing pain and stress are, are two very crucial things that we need to do and uh, protecting sleep, I would say, is another crucial thing. However, we also need to focus not just on minimizing the negative, but also optimizing the positive experiences. I think oftentimes NICU nurses really focus on trying to make negative experiences better, but what are some ways that we as nurses can um, help with these positive experiences and create positive experiences for these NICU babies? Yeah, so what you said uh, is very a very important concept to understand. So there are three critical elements um, of early brain development or critical concepts that uh, were published by the Harvard Center for Child Development. And those three are experience-dependent synapse formation, serve-and-return interaction, and toxic stress. So I think the NICU, the NICU nurse really understands that toxic stress part. We get it. We get that we need to minimize stress. We get that we need to mitigate painful experiences. Um, we need to optimize sleep. But those other two are also really important, and we need to understand that our babies, although very sick and premature, have the same developmental needs as any other newborn would have. So they need that serve and return interaction with caring adults, and they also need 
uh, attention to their experiences because what we know about synapse formation is that it is use or lose, meaning that the connections that you form in your brain are based on the experiences that you have. So the more a, a child has an experience, the more repetition that occurs, that pathway strengthens. And if those pathways are not stimulated early in life, they will wither away, and that child will never have another opportunity to make those connections. The serve and return is is very interesting concept because I feel like that's something that we can really incorporate families at the bedside in to help with creating those synapses and making things more positive instead of the families always trying to calm their baby during a stressful situation, but making them be, being more involved in a really positive experience to um, almost like kangaroo care. It's good for the baby. It's good for the mother. And this is another uh, way that parents can get really involved in the baby's uh, care. Absolutely. The the serve and return, we think of it so much for older children and are babies really able to return, but they are. So when a, when a young baby is talked to, sung to, spoken to um, by a caring adult, especially their mother, uh, they will take that uh, experience in and then they serve it back. So it's the, the mom is serving, the baby's returning um, through initially through just facial expressions, very subtle things, um, but then progressing to coups and vocalizations and eventually language. So that serve and return, that language rich um, back and forth that occurs is actually very crucial to early language development. So I know in your work, you focused a lot on language nutrition and language development. So can you tell us about your program that you developed? Yeah. So it's interesting. Uh, I actually had very focused interest in neurodevelopment um, from a very early time in my career. I immediately became interested in early brain development and in minimizing the, that toxic stress, um, but never heard of this concept of language nutrition. And I was actually reading uh, an article in Advances um, years ago, and the article's title had language nutrition in it. And I thought, what is language nutrition? I never heard of that term before. So I read the article, and this quote jumped off the page to me. I'm just going to read it because I think it's a very profound um, uh, quote. So research demonstrates that the single strongest predictor of a child's academic success is not socioeconomic status, level of parental education, income, or ethnicity, but rather the quality and quantity of words spoken to the baby in the first three years of life. So that really struck a chord with me, thinking we don't really pay attention to that. I mean, yeah, we talk to our babies when we're doing care. Um, you know, the parents might sing to, read to the baby. Maybe you're lucky enough to have a music therapist in your unit. But we really don't spend a lot of time thinking about the meaningful words that a baby hears during their time in the NICU. So that concept of language nutrition is, is very critical to these sick and premature babies. So I started reading more about language nutrition and started to understand um, how important it was for our babies and thought, man, I really need to figure out a way to implement a program, a reading program uh, in my unit. Now, the challenge of my unit, like many others, I'm sure, is that our parental visitation rate is not great. And and that's a complicated, that's a whole other podcast in itself, <laughs> why, why that is, I think. Um, but I thought we can't, yes, we want to encourage parents to be the readers, to be the people speaking to, reading to, um, singing to their baby. But 
we need to fill the gaps. So we need to partner with them to make sure that that baby is getting those um, synapses stimulated in the way that they need to um, to make positive connections in their brain early in life. So I thought we really need to think of a way to do this in our unit. And it was sort of, I guess, fate that at the time I was our unit's shared governance representative to Congress. And I was sitting there and the volunteer services director came up and said, I have all of these high school volunteers coming in the summer and I don't have projects for all of them. If you have a project, let me know. And I thought, well, they can read. Like, that's (laughs) super simple. They can come and read to the babies. So that's sort of how the idea um, came about. And I emailed her, and she was very excited and came um, to the unit that day to see me. And we sat down and started talking about how we were going to build baby bookworms. That's great that um, the volunteers and the high school students were able to really help out with this program. Um, But what about the units that don't have volunteers and don't have a really robust volunteer program? Um, I know some units like to use parents' recording of reading books at home or singing and then play it in the isolate or at the bedside as a way for them to feel connected to their parents. Um, Is that something that would be included in language nutrition or is it strictly something that has to be done live and in person? So I think that there are benefits in another way of hearing the recorded voice of a parent, especially the mother. So there are two elements to having someone speak to you, I think, as a baby, and especially hearing your mother's voice. One is the language development part of it, but the other is minimizing pain and stress. So babies prefer their mother's voice from a very young gestational age. They recognize their mother's voice from, I believe, 24 weeks gestation on. And so they like to hear even a recording of their parents' voice. And there is research that shows that it lowers their stress. They've measured um, salivary cortisol levels, things like that, to to prove that. So I think that the benefit of the recorded voice is for that minimizing pain and stress. I think for the language development, the research is pretty clear that it has to be a live person. And I think that you don't know the the answer until you ask the question. <laughs> so I would say that probably units have access to volunteer manpower that they don't even know about. Uh, because prior up to that point, we really didn't have volunteers in our NICU either because they didn't know they had a role in the NICU. So we didn't have a cuddler program at that time. We really didn't have a, a, um, a set plan in place for what volunteers would do in our unit. So they were serving other units in the hospital. And what I would also say is that you have to seek out uh, partners within your organization. And if you find your volunteer services director, which every hospital has a volunteer program, um, they would have a volunteer services director at the hospital to ask that person, you know, would you be able to support this program? And the answer might be not right now, but they could recruit for the program. So I think that it is key to have the live reader if you're looking to improve the language development. And because of that critical concept that I spoke about earlier, the serve and return, they have shown time and again that if you put a child in front of a screen and you're teaching them the same thing, so a live person is, um, you know, reading something to a child and then they're watching that very same person um, read to them on a screen, they've actually hooked that child up to 
um, AEG devices, functional MRI, and the parts of the brain that are stimulated when someone is speaking live to you, um, those language centers in the brain, they do not light up. They are not stimulated from a screen. Yeah, and I think the culture in most hospitals in the volunteer program is the NICU is off limits. It's, yes. you know, more of a sterile environment. We don't really want to have extra visitors. But this program seems that, you know, the volunteer can just sit right at the bedside and read to the baby. It doesn't require, you know, them to be touching the baby. Um, you know, they do interact, but not in a, in a physical a physical way. So I think if you're changing that culture to the volunteer department and, and if they understand how important this program is, yes. I think you'll get a lot of um, support for, for that as well. Absolutely. And I think that people want to help in the NICU and that it, it is an attractive area for a volunteer to help in. Everybody loves babies. They want to help. It's with, a fun with place to be. Absolutely. <laughs> so I think that if it's an, it would be an easy program to recruit to, I guess, is, is what my thought is um, on that if you don't currently have the volunteer manpower. Um, but it, you're right in that it's, it's not um, that these volunteers were holding the babies. As I said, initially, we started with high school volunteers. And so we were not having these high school students come in and hold our very sick babies. Um, we were having them come in and stand or sit at the bedside and read to the babies um, without holding them. So we heard how you got the volunteers to come on board with your program, but how else did you go about implementing baby bookworms? So we initially thought, okay, so we have the readers. We're, we're going to use these volunteers. Now we need books, right? So we went to our March of Dimes representative initially and asked if they could support us with books. Um, and uh, I'm sort of like a uh, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission type <laughs> of person in, in most of the things that I do. And so uh, we did quickly uh, need to transition to an e-reader, but we did start the program with physical physical books. And I do get asked that question a lot. Um, you know, can you use physical books or e-readers? Like what what are the risks and benefits with both? Um, so I think that, you know, the the ideal thing would be to have physical books because um, babies are more stimulated by the physical books. However, there is an infection control concern with that. Our volunteers, we were using hard uh, books, so like the cardboard um, hard books, and they were wiping them down in between. Um, but our infection control was still concerned um, about the permeability of the coating on the pages. So they did want us to go to an e-reader. I don't prefer the e-readers um, because there is research out there, not in babies, but in adult populations about the screen um, the luminance, yes, that it can affect your um, sleep quality. And so I didn't um, want to do e-readers for that reason. But in the end, that was the compromise with infection control that we had to go um, to an e-reader. And there's also research now, you know, the e-reader is probably the least of our worries with electronic equipment <laughs> in the NICU because there is so much. But there is research out there that also shows that um, electromagnetic fields that are surround electronics uh, do give off emissions, and they have done some animal studies showing that it does affect the brain development um, of a, a developing fetus. Um, so they've taken, say, a pregnant rat and put a cell phone on top of the cage, and what they find is that the offspring of that rat is more prone to um, hyper 
you know, hyperactive states, um, inattentiveness, poor memory, those sorts of things. So how do you make the decision um, as, as to which babies are eligible for the program and which ones you think might not quite be ready? Um, is there a cri- like an eligibility criteria that they must meet before they can be um, placed into the program? Yeah, so we base our program eligibility off of the data that was given in that advances article that I spoke about. The eligibility that they gave was 32 weeks uh, corrected and medically stable. So the that is based on a study which showed not that there was harm before 32 weeks, but that there was a clear benefit at 32 weeks and on for language nutrition programs, for the language development. So the uh, connections in your brain um, occur before that in terms of auditory exposure um, and being able to process auditory exposure, but the actual benefit in terms of the language development uh, was not shown prior to that 32-week mark. Not that it's harmful. I don't know that we know that it's harmful or beneficial before that. We know that mother's voice is beneficial before that, but we don't know that just reading in general um, to a baby would be beneficial before that. So we went with the 32 weeks and medically stable. Um, Generally, that means um, not necessarily, if you have a a baby that's stable on a ventilator, that's fine. Trach babies, that's fine. Um, Babies in an isolate, also fine, um, but you do need to be aware that voices are amplified in an isolate. <laughs> so the volunteers are taught how to turn on that heat curtain, uh, quietly open an isolate door and read at a, a reasonable decibel level. So there are apps available that you can download uh, that are decibel meters on your cell phone. And you can just test out what your normal reading voice is and get a feel for, am I at a safe decibel level? They aim for 45 decibels, which is not that easy to do, <laughs> I'll tell you. But um, that that's what they kind of get a feel for, what they what their voices um, sounds like at 45 decibels. And that's how they decide, um, you know, what level they should read when they're opening that isolate door. Um, and they basically have a list of babies that um, are in the unit that meet that criteria. And then they go room to room and see if that baby is uh, ready for engagement. So do you have an educational series for these volunteers that they need to go through in order to be part of this program? Yes. It was incredibly important to me, especially with the high school volunteers, because uh, as I'm sure you're aware and everyone is aware, NICU nurses are very territorial. (laughs) And so hearing that some high school kids were going to come in to the unit and be at the baby's bedside was initially um, not necessarily well received. (laughs) So it was very important to me to educate them on the importance of what they were doing uh, for that baby's brain development and also that they had a basic understanding of stress and engagement cues. So we did that with the high school volunteers. And then once we transitioned um, to adult volunteers after the summer was over, they also got that same education. 
And I went off of the March of Dimes has a um, a webinar online that is meant for parents, but the information is you know good for anybody who is a lay person that has not been trained to recognize those stress and engagement cues, so that they're um, they understand when they come to a baby's bedside, is that baby ready to be read to? And of course, they check in with the staff nurse um, if the baby's available or not, but they they would be able to look at a baby and say. Um, you know, that baby looks like they're ready to be read to or that they're ready, they want me to continue reading to them, which I think is also important to recognize versus they're starting to shut down. They're, you know, having gaze aversion. They, I need to end this interaction. Now, do you have a tracking system to see how much these um, babies are being read to, how mm-hmm. often, and, and do they try to have the same volunteer read to the same baby? You know, how do you implement that part of the pro- program? So we don't necessarily have the same volunteer reading to the same baby, although probably there is that repetition just because that we do limit the program. We don't, um, you know, we try to be very um, choosy about who, what, which volunteers we're having in the NICU. So it tends to be the same volunteers that are coming in um, shift after shift, but they... We do track it in our EMR, so we did add um, something where the nurses can say that the baby's getting language nutrition. In terms of the time read, the volunteers are tracking their time, so we know total hours read uh, for our unit uh, as a whole, but we don't know necessarily individual babies. That is something that uh, I would like to see as sort of a next phase uh, plan for the program uh, because there are some great um, devices out there for research. There are are these sort of Fitbit for words (laughs) devices, I guess. Yeah, it's called a Starling. So it literally is a little star and it clips on the baby or next to the baby and it just counts words. Um, And then there's a Lena device, which is a more sophisticated that's typically used. That's what you'll see in the published literature. Um, They always use the Lena device for their research studies um, on language exposure. So I would love to do something like that in our unit for sure. Um, but, you know, that would require quite quite a bit <laughs> <Yes>. of work. <laughs> yes, yes. And just another piece of electronic equipment that we need right. in the NICU. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so did you find any challenges in this program? Did you face any uh, pushback by um, administration, management, staff? Yeah, so as I said, when we first launched uh, the high school volunteers, there was some anxiety around that concept of having high school kids coming into the unit. Um, But I think people quickly appreciated um, that we were training them and that they did understand um, what they needed to do when they were in the unit so that they um, were a benefit to the babies, not, uh, you know, causing harm or stress to them. The administration, so my manager and the medical um, director, all that sort of um, hierarchy was very supportive of the program. Um, The pushback I got was from infection control. (laughs) So as I said, didn't necessarily ask their permission uh, before we launched because we launched in a very... um, small way. So we just started sort of these pilot reading rounds with one volunteer, the first volunteer. um, And 
it grew from there. So um, when once it sort of got on infection control's radar, uh, they came and uh, initially wanted to actually shut the program down um, until we got e-reader devices. And my medical director was uh, very supportive in that um, process where basically, you know, thanks for the advice, but we're not shutting the program down. Um, They are careful. They're wiping the books down. They're not holding the babies. So it's no different than, you know, the clothes that you or I wear (laughs) walking into the unit. Um, So they continued with the physical books until we got the e-readers. So I would say that was probably the biggest um, challenge. I mean, there's not much to argue. It seems like an amazing program, and there's so much, you know, positive things that come out of it. And, yeah. and the research is there. And I, yes. I feel as long as you have that research or support it, there, everybody should be accommodating to something that's so uh, rich to these to these infants and have amazing outcomes. Exactly. Well, so since it's such a great program and it seems like you have done tremendous things on your unit, um, what are some of the critical elements that nurses should know before starting this program on their unit? So I think that there are four things that are the major elements. So one, the readers. You have to decide who is going to read to the baby. So family is absolutely preferred. I would encourage you to use volunteers to fill those gaps to um, make sure that they're getting the language exposure that they need. Um, So, and a lot of research out there tells us that our babies spend a lot of time in silence. So really making a difference with those volunteers um, would benefit them. So seek out those people in your organization, your volunteer services director, and try to fill the gaps when the parents aren't there. Um, One thing about the volunteers, um, do you need to get permission from the families to have the volunteers read to the babies or consent, like some form of consent? So for the reading, no, because we are the the premise of this is that it it is a proven benefit um, that does not cause any harm. So uh, there are. In our unit, there was not this need to have um, an informed consent. You bring up a good point, though, that there should be education. So parents need education on the benefits of the program because at the end of the day, these babies are going to go home and we want them to continue reading to and talking to their babies in a meaningful way at home. So we want them to have that education, which they get in their admission packet, um, a flyer about the program. And then the volunteers fill out reading logs. So they come and read to the babies. They fill out a little log that the baby gets to take home. Oh, that's a nice keepsake, too. So, yeah. So then the parents can kind of see what they uh, are being read um, when they're not there, which I think also kind of makes the parents feel good that somebody's reading to their baby. Um you need to decide which babies you're going to read to. So are you going to start with, like I said, everybody that's 32 weeks and medically stable? Or are you going to start, you know, just with your NAS babies or just with your term babies? You know, you have to decide who you're going to read to. And then you have to decide your workflow, how the volunteers are going to move through your unit and read um, to each baby. So what kind of advice would you have to a nurse that wants to start this program? And how should they start? How would they begin? Where would they begin? Um, to develop a baby bookworms program of their own? 
So I think once you have a plan in terms of what your reading material is going to be and you have your readers, then you have to decide how you're going to implement the program. So I think that my advice would be small tests of change. So there's this concept of the PDSA cycles, the plan, do, study, act, um, you know, Google that. <laughs> um, we but, won't go yeah, into that right. tonight. No, but small tests of change, I think, are important in, in any program. If you try to plan every subtle nuance of a program from A to Z and then implement it on a wide scale throughout your unit, it's going to be a very daunting task because there are going to be things that you didn't think of um, when you were planning the program. And what we did once I had um, that support from the volunteer services director, I had my reading material. I started with one volunteer. One volunteer and I sat down together and hashed out what the process would be from the time that she came to the unit to scrub, getting the list of babies, and then moving from room to room. We laid out that process together in a in a very small, manageable way, just one-on-one, and then developed that training for the volunteers together and got that workflow down on paper together because that way it made sense not just to me and my nurse mind, but her and her <laughs> volunteer mind as well. Um, so small tests of change, I think, are key to success when you're implementing any sort of quality improvement project in, in the NICU or elsewhere. So what's next for baby bookworms? Well, like I said, I would absolutely love to do a research study, and I'm actually passing the torch um, to a younger nurse that's going to take over this program um, in the coming year, and she has expressed interest in doing um, a research study. So I will likely work with her on getting some sort of um, language device like the Lena or the Starling so that we could actually do a study and um, look more into the hours and the benefit in our unit. Thanks, Sarah, for joining us today. Baby Bookworms is an excellent example of bringing the Advances Journal to life. It was a huge step in creating optimal neurodevelopmental outcomes. Join us for the continuation of our neurodevelopmental series and head over to NAN's website and subscribe to NANCAST. Thanks for letting us into your ears and have a great day.